Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. It's so great to be back in the studio. I hope you've all been enjoying a wonderful summer wherever you've been, whether you've been uh, doing a bit of DIY at home or travelling across Europe, across the pond, the large pond, the Atlantic or various other places. So much travel to be done now post-Covid. Well, I've been away for a few weeks as well. I had a lovely time in London with my family and my mother especially and with some dear old friends as well. And I know our audience is very international and that is reflected in my guests today. Please let me introduce you to them right in front of me. I've got Matteo Ressa and you're going to talk to us all about your new entrepreneurial journey with Chef Passport. Uh, Monica Serban, you're going to talk to us all about transferring into ecology, the green movement through comedy and script writing from an economist background. And Adeline Lai, we're going to bring a bit of science upcoming. So we're going to set that date in the calendar for something that's coming up uh, mid-September in Luxembourg. Now, Matteo, I'm going to give our audience a little bit of background on you. You've moved from the tech world to global culinary visionary. So you've co-founded and you are the CEO of Chef Passport. And before this, before working in the culinary world, you worked in digital innovation with all sorts of household names, Amazon, Vodafone, BMW. And you've combined your passion as an Italian for food and culture and the knowledge of global tech and you became a pioneering force in the cook tech realm with Chef Passport. So what is Chef Passport? Well, first of all, Lisa, thank you very much for the invitation for for today. I'm super excited. And well, that's that's me in a nutshell. Actually, Chef Passport uh, was born here in Luxembourg in 2018, 2019. So we've been around for five years uh, right now with the dream of connecting people with chefs worldwide through digital food experiences. So let me say that Chef Passport evolved a lot throughout the years. So the initial idea was to build a platform to connect uh, chefs from all over the world with uh, foodies that want to learn about worldwide cuisine. And it was like a platform where you can select the type of cuisine you want to learn, you book a one-to-one session with a chef, and you have an actual live streaming session from the comfort of your home with a chef that can be wherever in the world. So just to say to our listeners, it's a little bit like a dating app, a bit like Tinder, but with a chef and a, and a foodie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At the beginning, that was that was the idea. Then it evolved more. We we can talk about a little bit more later. It evolved more into a platform to provide virtual team building experiences for businesses. That is still our main, uh, main product. And then recently, we we're also venturing into actual team building, still focused on cooking here in in Luxembourg, and also in an additional, very interesting, pioneering AI food features that are oh AI food features exactly. Tell I me, will, tell I will me tell you a little bit more. Yeah, so actually, this is one of the of the recent uh, products that we 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 launched at the moment. It's called Chef Passport Escapes, and this is the idea of leveraging AI to create super personalized meal plan recipes, food, so you can actually. Give us your profile. I am I am following a gluten free diary dietary, or I have um, I'm vegan. I'm vegetarian. I want this to be included. So we actually tailored every recipe powered by AI, reviewed by our internal chefs. We have around. 40 chefs now in our in our network and we create personalized recipes tailored to each individual need. That's a really really cool idea. But let's go back. Let's yeah. go back because you had a, your first career let's say in innovation working with, you know, companies we've all heard of. So you you grew the technology there. Why have you transitioned to combine that with food? Yeah, that's uh, I think that when you start a business they used to say you can ever either have an idea or you have a technology or you have a passion. In my case I think it's definitely a passion as I mentioned I- I'm Italian. <laughs> as an Italian we are well known for loving food and cooking. Cooking has always been something part of my family uh, back in the days where my grandma was teaching me uh, the, the basics of cooking. So this is something that once uh, let me say around 5 years ago during one of my travels to Thailand, I had the opportunity to dine into a restaurant where there was a, this 
cookwoman that reminded me very much what my grandma used to do with me, that it was not only about cooking, but it was about the storytelling behind cooking. What is the culture behind cooking? How cooking and food is important to connect people, cultures, families. And then I said, okay, I see a lot of similarities with what my grandma, how she inspired me and how this woman was inspiring her own clients. So I said, how can we give a voice to these chefs that not only want to teach how to cook, but they want to share something more, something emotional about what cook represents for them. And this was the origin of the, uh, the, the idea that gave me the, 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 the sprint at the beginning to start and say, okay, I want to build something, some platform to allow these people to tell more about their stories. And then, yeah, this is something that uh, I transitioned mostly overnight. And I said, I was still in Amazon back in the day. You transitioned almost overnight. Yeah, yeah I said. That's okay. very rare, I think. Yeah, but I, I Are felt you sure it. it was overnight? A lot of people have that kind of bubbling up of an idea. Yeah, but it was like, um, one, in one night, I said, okay, uh, I'm done. I'm done with the corporate life. I want to give it a try. And, and this is what, how everything started. It was back in 2018 and flash forward five years. Wow. But most people, most entrepreneurs, at the point at which they say, I'm done, they have a financial buffer zone to mm-hmm. allow them to make that leap. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, so you 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 didn't go jump blindly into something. Oh, well, you had thought through. <laughs> well, well, that was that was thought through. I I knew how much could have been the runway. Then we went for the first uh, round of funding. So we we did uh, everything. Let's say as a, as a startup mm-hmm. should be doing, and yeah. And you knew the path. Well, it's it's very successful. But why did you choose Luxembourg to start the venture? Oh well. Uh, I've been living in Luxembourg for 10 years right now. And I think uh, this is one of the main reasons is that this is where I settled down. This is where my family is right now. This is where my, my son is Luxembourgish now. So I think that this is a well, country that really welcomed me. And we proudly say that we are a local company with a global mindset rooted in Luxembourg. So this is why we also want to help and establish partnership with local brands and help the, the local economy. And then because we are uh, we are business that is very focused on international multicultural i think this is the place to be so in luxembourg with this community really helps understand what is the value proposition that we are bringing with chef passport and lastly i think the vibrant startup ecosystem that is blooming in the latest year really helped us yeah, it, I think it has improved from what I've seen. You mentioned your son. We have to give a little call out to 10-month-old Orlando. Yeah. Uh, we were just talking about Orlando before we went live. And uh, given that you have a young child, have you thought about introducing uh, a young range of culinary expertise? Um, in terms of? In terms of doing little cookery uh, experiences with children oh, uh, or bringing in a kind of a, an AI helping aid for mothers with young children? That's definitely one of the three uh, type of audiences we're talking right now are actually busy parents because I'm trying to transfer my own experience in also, you know, whenever I experience something in first person, then I try to, to translate in some sort. Is there any service. other type of parent other than a busy one? <laughs> <laughs> I, d- yeah, I don't know. A, a hungry one, Lisa. A hungry yes, one, a hungry very one. good. One. Very good. And also, yesterday <laughs> I was talking, I was having this lunch with a person. You know what? Um, I, my son, I have one vegetarian son. I have diabetes problems. Uh, my wife is celiac. And every day for us, it's a challenge to wow. find a menu that fits everyone. And that's, for example, one type of family that we are thinking about helping by giving you a tool where you can easily find something that fits every dietary needs across the across the family so that's absolutely one of the things and to answer the first part of the question uh, yes I know that there are a lot of demand now in Luxembourg for cooking classes for kids this is not something we're focusing at the moment let me say but we are talking I'm talking with other partners that are already doing like this and they're telling me there is a lot of interest so maybe it's something we could I think it's very important I mean this is maybe a slight aside but 
I know it's one of those skills for life that isn't really taught at school. Absolutely. I mean, I know, you know, as a mother, I have two daughters and they've gone to a, a cookery class back in the UK and that, that was great fun. And they also, um, the younger one attended one here, but literally every week they made biscuits. And I thought that's not really the best. I mean, biscuits once a term may be fine, but, you know, learn a bit about nutrition and all the rest of it. And yeah, given the family that you've just described, celiac, diabetes, young children, that's a that's a tough order to yeah. <laughs> to figure out how to cook for that. So going back to your tech background, mm-hmm. do you think you could have created this without that knowledge? Well, I think that having uh, um, having a vertical tech knowledge helps. It's not mandatory because sometimes you know you, you you hear about successful entrepreneurs that as long as you know how to run a business, you don't necessarily need to have a vertical knowledge. But I, I really think it, it helps. For example, even having been part of international projects, uh, we, even in my previous life with Amazon, Vodafone, it gives you that mindset uh, to understand what how to innovate, how to be customer-centric, how to scale uh, companies. So I really believe that I do not regret anything on my journey because I think that every single step I've taken during my corporate was a step forward to come to the point where I am today. So it really helped me learn a lot about how to manage a digital business. And then when I felt comfortable enough, you never, you're never arrived to the last point. But when I felt comfortable enough to give it a try, this is where I decided to to move from corporate. And something that was very important to you as well was to give yourself an opportunity to work and work from anywhere. That's correct. That's another another component because we really advocate for remote work. We are 100% remote companies. We have freelancers and employees in Luxembourg and all over the world. I think around 17 different countries in the world, our chefs, our collaborators. So I really believe that the pandemic helped understand if there is one good thing that left the opportunity for businesses and for people of embracing more remote work. This is why we're a remote first company and we help companies who are remote first because our product line for businesses, for example, it's really targeting those uh, companies that have their employees all over the world. Maybe they don't have a regular lunch, a regular happy hour, regular dinner, but it's super important that we are going to have social moments. And number says that 36.2 millions of remote workers will be there by 2025, and 80% of them are expressing a desire to be more connected uh, humanly, even if they are all over the world. But do you think you can attain that human connection even through a computer I believe that this is possible. At least uh, it gives you the opportunity of doing something where before there was nothing. It will never be 100% true. This is why we also offer events in person. That connection that you have in person, you cannot 100% reach it online. But I believe there are examples of of people that started online and maybe then after they met, they already knew, hey, you know, I remember you were the person coming from... I don't know, Thailand, and you brought your pad thai to share during our virtual cooking class. So at least that ice-breaking, that initial connection can be made online. And of course, we're all humans, and then we can nurture these initial connections in real life after. And uh, just looking at some of the statistics I have in front of me here uh, from market research, you've got you know about 10 million global users of virtual team building platforms already. Uh, well, this is the number in the market. This is yes, in, not not yours. I mean, I mean, in yes. the market. In the yeah. market at the moment, there are ten million users that are already adopting yeah. virtual team building platform. Not necessarily cooking. There are a lot of different virtual team building, virtual treasure hunt, yeah. uh, escapes rooms, so on and so forth. But this is a number that is projected to grow even furthermore by fifteen percent yeah, in the next five, three to five years. Five mm-hmm. And uh, I think the remote work, as we also say, is here to stay. It will never hundred percent to replace the in-person, but for those companies that embrace embrace this lifestyle. So for people who've done it, for people who've taken part in Chef Passport, what have they said? What have they said to you? The good and the bad. Give us the good and the bad. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we we ran more than 300 events with global companies, big names over there. And one of the constant feedback that we hear is how this is innovative because they say, wow, the connection, uh, how the connection between the human components and the innovation itself. Because, for example, our chefs have 
different cameras. It's a, like a small studio, but every every chef is sometimes from their own home. We have chefs who actually built their own studio kitchen as a separate kitchen in their apartment just to run this type of show. So we really have been innovative. It's okay, wow, something I've never done before. And they really say, well, you know that after months and months, the team is still talking about that experience. So we were able to move a needle in the even an emotional needle to to plant a seed into people's mind and create something fun for for their teams and a call out to any chefs who might be listening to this around the world how can they get in touch to become a chef on yeah, chef passport that's, that's so we have an internal academy because uh, what we believe is that uh, every chef is definitely a good chef but our um, we want to take chefs uh, to, for chef passport to the next level this is why we have this program called the top chef instructor meaning that we teach you know, not only how to be a chef because you already are a good chef but how to be a digital chef so how to interact with the tools how to manage the different cameras so you just go to chefpassport.com and become a chef there is a there is a uh, section you fill a Form. Usually, sometimes we do something fun. So we ask them to record the video when they do scrambled eggs. So we see how they are in camera, how they interact. And once then, they go through a sort of recruitment process with our team. And if they make it, then they become part of our network. And you've talked about the global vision behind this. So I imagine you also incorporate many different languages. Absolutely. So this is something that, uh, let me say, 90% of the service at the moment is in English, but we ran classes in French, in German, in Luxembourgish itself. But in Italian? In Italian, uh, a couple, I think, yeah. I think there's room for improvement there, Matteo. <laughs> definitely. There is one thing, but on the other hand, uh, I can, you said, you asked me also to share something that didn't work. Yes, and I please. I actually share it proudly. I noticed uh, that you kind of like swept that one, but thank you for no, coming no, back no, to well, it. Thank I you. was waiting the, the, the right input. Yeah, thank you. So, for example, three years ago, we tried to launch Chef Passport Italy. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work because I believe that, you know, us as Italian I have this kind of very pride culture about food, about the way we're a little bit, you know, very... Uh, sometimes we're, we we like doing things in a certain way when it comes to, to cooking. And it was not that successful because yeah, despite uh, me as a founder, as an Italian founder, the idea of having a non-Italian company try to approach the Italian market with a sensitive topic like food... <laughs> It didn't work. Maybe, I, maybe now that after a few years things changed, I really would like to give it a try. But that's one of the main reasons why we have not focused yet. On but I think it would work very well the other way around. Italian chefs teaching. That worked very well. Yeah. It's, but Italian teaching in English. So yeah. we definitely have Italian <laughs> chefs that, you know, one, one of the biggest, the best match were Italian chefs teaching fresh pasta to American audience. Oh, yeah. So I can. that worked. Pretty I can well. see that would work out well. Actually, uh, from my Italian friends myself, I know that even there are massive regional differences, Absolutely. of course, but regional, let's say, um, intense discussions between how certain things should be done. Absolutely. <laughs> so, not even regional. Sometimes it's a town to town. Or family to family or even. Family to family. Yeah, no, there's a great passion there between uh, behind Italian food. Now, so let's think about uh, just uh, more on the sustainable landscape because I know this is something that you care about as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've specifically thought about Chef Passport mm-hmm. in line with UN Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah. That's definitely something that we are we are now moving a further uh, a further step because definitely about sustainable production and also help good habits in uh, in health, good health and food. So this is something that uh, we are now conceiving an additional product that goes more in that direction, still uh, powered by AI. So we're trying to innovate even further more in that space. And just imagine, uh, I, we are opening the first conversation, just imagine uh, a world where you have all your smart IoT kitchen tools that can get automatically programmed with AI created recipes so that all your, they can be, and you know, you have every, every, every tool that can be controlled and demanded and with the, all the recipes from their own app. That's one of the applications. I've got very strange visions of the future <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> 
I don't know how long it will take for an Italian kitchen to take hold of yeah, that. But the first steps are already there. We already have some uh, some conversations open with a few brands of kitchen appliances to do something like this. Or the other one can be really ultra personalized. And I don't know if you recently heard about uh, AI recipes. They made a few mistakes when creating menus. And this is why I, I believe that there is a huge opportunity to build a scientific backed layer on top of the actual language models that every AI is powered right now, where you can actually validate by doctors, nutritionists, and an additional layer of data, where you can definitely validate and back scientifically whatever recipe, dietary plan, or meal plan an AI can come with. Well, I think you might be taking part in the science slam coming up. Adeline will uh, talk we to were, us we more were about this. this, this and is I think a, we, need, uh, we need to have a discussion. Very interesting. Well, you also touched on sustainable, and that will bring us uh, right to our next guest just after this short break. The Lisa Burke Show. Now, my next guest is Monica Servan, who is an environmental economist turned screenwriter of all things. After working with EU funded projects for many years, covering environmental projects, biodiversity funding for Natura 2000 network of protected areas, she pivoted to comedy. So she's retrained as a screenwriter and Monica hopes to tell stories that inspire by blending popular culture with environmental and social issues, focusing on storytelling, which we were talking about in Chef Passport, that can bring about positive change. Her first and most personal project is 10 to Midnight, which is the world's first environmental sitcom. And here's the tagline for it. After an important natural reserve is destroyed and the PR manager of an oil company is appointed general director, the multinational ragtag project team of a fictitious UNEP subsidiary decides to fight the system from within. Monica, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Lisa. It's great to have you here. Now, you have quite the background, a bit like Matteo, in the sense that you, you started off as an economist, and I think that was partially driven by what your parents wanted for you. Oh, yes. But uh, to go back, I think it all started when I was about nine years old, my first foray into writing. How, how much time do you have? <laughs> we, we have a bit of time. <laughs> no, yeah. So actually, it was also a radio show, and it was a poetry contest, and I submitted, okay, no judgment, a poem about the glory of communism. Uh, this was the, yeah, before the revolution, the Romanian revolution. So these were the themes. <laughs> yeah. Then. And I won. Funny. Because, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I have come along. Um, way and since then and um, writing and environment have always been my two loves besides my family but um, my parents said they were not uh, they were poor career choices emphasis on poor uh, because yeah this was Romania so I became an economist but at some point I've decided uh, I work in the private sector and I decided to leave my well-paying job for um, a new position at the Ministry of Environment, which paid five times less. So you can imagine, I, my first salary was like 150 euros, about. Thousand euros. One, no, one, 150 euros. Per, yeah. per? Per month. Right. In, <laughs> in, in which country? Romania. Okay, this was in the yeah, 2000 something. Um, but 2005, I think it was. So, uh, yeah, everybody thought I was crazy. I was living with my parents, otherwise I couldn't possibly uh, do it, uh, including the um, exam panel when I passed the civil servant exam and they didn't understand why I was there, coming from the private sector on that salary. But uh, it was the beginning of an amazing, wonderful adventure that started with, uh, yeah, 
at first I didn't have a desk, I didn't have a computer to put it on. Um, I didn't have anything. So you started building up the environmental section, working as a civil servant for the Romanian government? Yes, we were just starting implementing um, the, the European uh, funding program. And um, until then, environment in Romania had been like the poorest ministry of them all. I mean, nobody cared. Nobody knew what it was. It wasn't the priority. No, it was the last I had. And um, so for me, it was like a huge uh, opportunity. I was the happiest person there. Nobody could understand why, but I was like, in, had a vision of greatness. Of course, that vision came crashing down on more than one occasion. And a bit, that's how uh, I was, I was always writing. And um I, that's when I more or less started writing the, the plot for the series because I actually thought somebody would make it before me because this was like 15, more than 15 years ago. And I thought comedy, I mean, there are documentaries, dramas, but comedy gives, um, is such a fresh angle and can empathize with people in, in a in a different way. With comedy, you can certainly say things that you might not be allowed to say in other ways. But I mean, just moving from your role as a civil servant for the Romanian government, you did actually take time out to develop your art of screenwriting. You took proper courses and you didn't just <laughs> keep writing, which could have been perfect anyhow, but you did actually study the art of screenwriting. Yes, that was, uh, I think, just before COVID, uh, when I decided, yes, I'm going to do this. Um, I mean, I wanted to be for a long time, but, you know, um, everybody said, you have no chance. You have no connections. Uh, to, this is a very closed um, business. Um, you'll never make it. So I said, okay, I don't care. Now I don't care anymore. Uh, I did a course at UK's Writers College and I enrolled in a program in the US, which I consider like they do the best comedy series. Uh, and yeah, and then um, it took me three years more than 50 rewrites. But you did actually have a pilot script and you have won international accolades. Talk to us about those. Quite a few accolades, in fact. Yes, this last year, I mean, the last rewrite, um, I won, uh, I have six accolades, uh, five in the US and one in Europe for best TV project in English language. Um, so I said, OK, I launched a website on um, the 5th of June. World Environment Day, um, and um, I said, now is the time to try to promote this and try to find a producer. So you have, you're sitting here now, this is a call out for anybody listening, with a great script, it seems. I mean, you've won global accolades all around the world for best TV series project mm -hmm. in English language is one thing I'm quoting here. Um, and you're just waiting for a producer. Now, why has that part not happened for you yet, do you think? Well, as I uh, came to uh, discover uh, the environment part, I mean, uh, all the producers I sent uh, and I, I got in contact with and read the script, loved it, the comedy. But they said, uh, comedy angle will make it a hard sell. Who will want to watch if it has, if it's about environment? And so the producers don't think the audience, they're assuming us, the audience, are not ready for a sitcom on the environment. They probably think it's a little bit too close to the bone, a bit too close to the point. But as you already mentioned, comedy is a way in which you can actually express ideas in another way. Yes. And uh, I mean, Desperate Housewives was uh, rejected because, um, you know, they were too middle-aged. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> initially, you know. Stranger Things was rejected because um, uh, the actors were too young for the theme initially. And yeah, there have been many examples of something that's considered n that will not appeal to an audience. I think they're wrong. I just I just haven't found uh, the person who, who will see the potential of what this can be. And as a social, I mean, uh, the social impact and also the entertainment value. 
because they yeah. Don't do that. I mean, really, you're trying to tell a very important story through the guise, the lens of comedy, and sometimes that sits with an audience very well, and the ideas come very well. And in fact, we'll we'll come back to you, Monica, because uh, I'm going to bring in our next guest now, who is Adeline Lai, and we're going to talk about the science slam because I know this is something that incorporates, you know, tough ideas sometimes, but on stage. And I'm pretty sure you'll have some thoughts on what Monica's just described. But just to give a little bit of background about you, Adeline, you participated in last year's Science Slam. You won second place talking about chemistry computers and the environment. So it's all linked here. And you had such a great time last year that now you are on the organisation team supporting science communication in Luxembourg. You yourself, uh, your PhD is at the University of Luxembourg using data science to tackle environmental chemical pollution. So I think you and Monica could have quite a few conversations. So uh, it's great to have you with us, Adeline. And I know you're going to talk to us about something that's very close to your heart. But first of all, have you any thoughts on what Monica's just been describing? Well, I'm really, really inspired by it. Um, I think it's such an important topic and uh, I'd love to, to eventually see the sitcom. Yeah, I, I think it's it's something that can definitely uh, come to life. And One viewer. <laughs> no, you've got a couple. You've got at least three viewers. Look, we're all your supporters here today, and that and and the listenership as well. And call out to any listeners there who know any producers. Uh, this is a great opportunity uh, to back what could be the next Desperate Housewives or Stranger Things. Who knows? So that's great. My home, the next Big Bang Theory, please. Oh, Big Bang Theory. Yes, of course. Yes, I'm bringing you back to the science. Even better. Yes, even better. So tell us, what is the Science Slam? Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, Well, the Science Slam is an entertaining and fun way of looking at research here in Luxembourg. Um, It is an event that will take place in two weeks' time. So it will be on September 15th at the Neumünster Abbey. And basically, it's just for people of all ages, no scientific or any research background needed. Just come along, bring your curiosity, learn what research is taking place here in Luxembourg from six slammers. Six slammers. So they've already been chosen. You've already got the the final six. That's right. I assume it's a whole range of topics. Absolutely. And every year, so this is the eighth year, and every year we have a broad range of topics. Each year is a new topic. Um, And we have six slammers, each representing the different research institutions here in Luxembourg, which also brings um, the diversity of research topics here in Luxembourg. So we're going to have someone talk about archaeology. Someone's going to tell us more about their research in physics. Um all kinds of topics. And what language will it be in? It will be in English. Um, It is the lingua franca of science and uh, we hope that lots of people will come and uh, will be able to participate. And just thinking about this again, so it's the 8th edition, just uh, a call out again for listeners, it's the 15th of September, Friday the 15th at Nymanster Abbey, 7pm. How can people get tickets? They can get it on the Abbey website. Tickets cost €5 and uh, we really, really hope you come. Last year we had almost a full house So, and every year we're always getting positive feedback. More and more people are bringing their friends, their families, their babies, their grandmothers, all kinds of people. So... And I know it's run by a team of volunteers. It's uh, run by, um, whoa, just wait for one moment. I see that the recording has stopped. I just need to rejig that for a moment. Yes, um, it's run by volunteers from LuxDoc and Descom. So tell us a bit more about what LuxDoc is. So LuxDoc is an ASBL registered here in Luxembourg. Um, It's a young researchers association. And it's basically providing um, kind of an exchange or a platform for doctoral students, but also young researchers in general. And DESCOM stands for the Doctoral Education Science Communication Project hosted at the University of Luxembourg. That's a very long title, but it's very, very important because uh, you know, a long time ago I did study sciences and always <laughs> the public perception is that scientists can't talk about what they do. But in fact, this is, this is really changing. It's really, really changing. And I think the University of Luxembourg, for instance, is developing strategies to really help all of their, well, all of the students, but especially the science students to explain what they do. And I think the the disconnect is that often scientists are doing something that's very hard to talk about or so perceived to be hard. So how do you get across that barrier? Well, I think it's really putting yourself in the shoes of the audience and understanding that, you know, there's always a story behind research, whether it's science, whether it's physics, whether it's history, whether it's social science. There's always a a big question we have and that we're trying to solve. 
And uh, it's kind of just trying to tell a story about that, really. And then thinking about uh, each scientist, you've got six of them, they've got 10 minutes on stage. Tell us about the last seven years, some of the things that you've had to entertain them. Because I know it's not just standing on stage, giving a mini lecture. You've had people with lemons. You've had all sorts, a rap even, I believe. That's right. Last year was really, really fun. Um, I was one of the six lucky people to present at the Science Slam. Last year, we did have lemons, Lisa. Lemons were flying across the stage. What was the story? I wasn't there. So what was happening with the lemons? Well, it was uh, one one of my colleagues, actually, who was explaining his research. He was working in economics. Oh. So, <laughs> so where did the lemons come in? <laughs> well, it was his form of trying to explain uh, what he was doing. And I think it really worked really well. It explained, you know, money flows, I think it was. Um, but yeah, like you said, we also had a rap, somebody who rapped about their research as well. Um, so really it's open, open house. Completely open. And they're voted for by the audience. Mm-hmm. So who has the final say and who wins? It's you, it's the audience. Okay, okay. And then what are the winning prizes? Ooh, um, you get a really, really wonderful, shiny trophy. Um, <laughs> but most of all, I think it's just really the, the pleasure of, of spending an evening talking about your research, interacting with people. I think this is one of the main um, things we're looking forward to, that during and after the event, the audience can definitely come up to the scientists, the researchers, and talk to them a little bit and find out a bit more about research here in Luxembourg and what they're doing. And do you feel there's enough communication then? You've, you've started walking, apart from the PhD, into the realm of science communication. Do you feel that there's enough transfer of that knowledge of what's being done in Luxembourg to local people? I think, uh, in principle, there's never enough. But also, <laughs> I think Luxembourg does such a wonderful job. Um, there's so many organisations here in Luxembourg doing science communication, besides the university and DESCOM, uh, the FNR, so the Luxembourgish National... Um, yeah, yeah, research fund. Research fund, thank you. Um, they do great things with, with all kinds of uh, topics and, and projects. We have things like, um, from the DESCOM, for example, they have science comics. Those are really, really popular every year. The scientists team up with local artists. Um, all kinds of wonderful activities. That's great. Well, I will uh, give another call out. Uh, Neumünster Abbey on the 15th of September, 7pm. Buy your tickets on the site and hopefully there will be a lot of people there. And we'll come back to Matteo just after this little break. The Lisa Burke Show. So, Matteo, you've been listening to these lovely stories of a fellow entrepreneur here right next to you, Monica, and, and the science brought to the stage. So I would like you to, to think about uh, Monica's conundrum right now. And given your entrepreneurial journey, what can she do to help find this producer? Well, I think the persistence is key, <laughs> first of all, because sometimes it's just, I, I mean, I see very some similarities. A producer can be somehow seen as a, um, as an investor for, for, for a startup because the, I see a lot of similarities. So uh, one thing that I learned, you really need to find a community that is interested in what, uh, probably they have already invested in similar projects in the past. Something that comes, I know that you are very unique and it's very specific, but I believe you can find, because sometimes, you know, even with investors, you need to find investors who are in your industry somehow. And I think this could be definitely something uh, similar than there are there are a lot of communities, there are a lot of groups, uh, even here in Luxembourg that can help you. And it's a, it's a human relationship game at the, end, at the end of the day. You really need to, 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 to talk to the heart of these people, because at the end of the day, this is the main the main reason why you can capture attention and cut through the noise. Because sometimes investor producers they receive so many pitches, so many requests, and you really I believe that you really need to put your unique value prop at the top of your pitch or contact whatever you you going you get in touch with them, and don't give up. I think you can you will be get so many doors slammed in your face, but after a thousand, the one that will be open will make your dream come to life. Well, you've definitely managed to create this net, uh, global network of chefs, for instance. And again, it's very interesting that you're talking about developing that network. And we have great opportunity to develop a global network these days. It's literally at our fingertips. I'm looking at it right now in front of me, the computer. And we can, you know, touch on everything. So have you developed that global network of screenwriting friendships or, you know, a, a network of producers you can tap into or any feedback from those? 
Well, I have, uh, I think my network is more in the US because what I've discovered is um, for emerging writers such as myself, screenwriters, um, the US gives more opportunities um, for programs where you can meet with producers and talk to them directly or your peers. In, uh, in Europe, uh, it's a bit closed unless you have something produced. Nobody really pays any attention to you. Um, that's <laughs> it's why kind of a black hole. You need to produce something in order to be seen. And <laughs> it's a, yeah, yeah. Actually, I uh, I was asked by a U.S. producer if I would consider changing the um, location to U.S. making a, but um, the, I couldn't because it's uh, the location has to be Europe because it allows it's a neutral place for um, where global perspectives can be explored in a in a way that it's perfect. Um, so, but yes, that's why I appreciate so much your invitation, Lisa. I'm trying to get as much visibility as I can. So, uh, you know, if any producers, But there's another angle here, which is the ESG angle that every company is trying to tick the box off now for, for good reasons, hopefully, but, but nonetheless, they are having to tick the box of this. So have you approached any companies who could help you with this? Just take a different, uh, like, slant angle at this. Yes, I uh, I definitely <laughs> uh, have a strategy. I also talked with one company um, which promised uh, to give us equipment for filming. And I uh, intend to, to reach out to, to more companies that might be interested in um, investing in education and awareness, uh, and, but combining them in an edutainment way that, um, yeah, that has, a, let's say, more impact um, than just simple awareness activities or educational activities. Yeah, Matthias. Yeah, and if I can just add one, maybe one, one thought. One, one thing that I've seen working pretty well, at least in my experience, sometimes we, we believe, we try to solve ourselves the kind of problem and it takes a lot of effort, time, energy. And I really believe that we are, despite our problems uh, look very unique to us, we are not the first one in the world. So sometimes I found much more efficient to invest the time to find someone who had the same problem you had and ask him how they solved and just get inspired rather than trying to solve it yourself. So if you find your a peer of you, we're 8 billion out there. I'm sure there is someone <laughs> in the world in a very similar situation five years ago who fixed the problem. Probably this will be a shortcut for you to... Or have you thought about producing it yourself? Uh, yes, I did. And I definitely will get involved, but I don't want, I don't have the experience. And, uh, you know, I want it to be a professional show. And for that, I need someone who, who knows how, especially if it's comedy. Comedy is, has, it's very particular. Why did you choose to do comedy, actually? Why was that uh, integral to the vision? Yeah, you know, comedy is the most difficult to write at, of all. Uh, well, it's uh, difficult to write because everybody has a different cultural perspective and background. And I know that the UK comedy is very different to the US comedy, very different. Speed, very different jokes were allowed. Humor it, it's completely different humour. Yeah, completely different. So how did you even pitch that humour coming from a Romanian? As you said, you won the poetry competition at the age of nine for glory to communism or something. So, you know, you've done quite a few, you know, mental flips to be then writing comedy in English. <laughs> so. yeah, I also consider that a satire, but it was too early to be understood. <laughs> uh, yes, I believe, uh, you know, a good satire can do more than a uh, thousand sermons. And that's a adapted quote. And um, my all my favorite writers were uh, great masters of humor, like Oscar Wilde and Bernard Shaw. And, and, um, but they, they weren't US. I like British literature. Yes, but you said you, you like US comedy. Yes. I haven't forgotten that. <laughs> I, I also I also love some, uh, of course, British shows like Yes Minister is one of my yeah. favorites. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> <laughs> only Fools and Horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a uh, lot. <laughs> but it's very, oh, only to say, it's a very different style to American comedy. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I like a bit of combination uh, of the two because I like, you know, The Big Bang Theory is one of my comps, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Office um, and um, MASH. 
mm-hmm. in terms of you know tragedy and comedy blending together meshes like for me the bible mm-hmm. um so i think people just i i don't want to preach to anybody i don't want to tell them uh, you should do this no it's about seeing people i mean you come home after a difficult day you just relax in front of a comedy show where you see people that have similar problems they just work in a, a sector that actually is supposed to take care of us, us all to clean our mess uh, and they are not perfect either so they are trying to do their best they can and you know this from personal experience i mean you've lived in these offices you've you've developed these offices so you know that the people in them you know actually what the character is like yes and they are wonderful people and they are i think almost 99% of them all crazy some way or the other which is great for a <laughs> that's, show that's just humankind surely. yeah because you have to be i mean working in environment you have to be a bit like against all odds what am i doing here sometimes am i making any difference <laughs> um so it's a lot of existential existential questions um so yeah i think comedy is the best way to explore this although my friends tell me you know forest fires floods uh, i mean what is there to laugh about and i say exactly Well, I can't wait to read the script. I am very curious to know what it's about and I really hope some producer will find a way to make it happen. But I want to go back to your journey from Romania at the desk that you said didn't even exist when you started getting the job. I I had to steal one. <laughs> so so you're here in 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 the very new um environmental department of the Romanian government. Um what has that department grown into today? Has it made a difference? Yes. Although these are unsung heroes. Nobody knows that we were the ones that um prepared like uh, tens of water projects, waste projects, uh, biodiversity, everything. Uh, and of course, in the press, there is always, you know, the political figures. Uh, but all the work was done by just a department of people that nobody knows and will never know. Uh, and that's the nature of civil service. <laughs> yes, and there were consultants too. That's how I met my husband. <laughs> um, and it was uh, now uh, they continue they remember me <laughs> very well some still are still there some left and are doing other things but um i think um someone should tell their story and um and you've brought that into your comedy script and yes and it's i mean it's the comedy of the fight against all odds by imperfect humans who are not superheroes but maybe they are superheroes in a way And so yeah I'm, I'm this is what I'm trying to show. And when you do sit at that desk that you stole from some other department where do you start when you're creating an environmental remit where do you even begin? Well as one producer told me can you make wastewater treatment funny? I said yes I can. So I wrote a scene about you know um this uh, former pr manager of an old company who become, becomes the you know director of an environmental agency he wants, he needs to go to a meeting and it's about a wastewater treatment plant and yeah he needs to find out what that is before the meeting eventually so this is a scene so i had to make it funny so that anybody can understand um so i did that so i said if i can do that then i can do it without and i can write about climate change without even saying climate change i don't have to say and it's actually it's better if i don't say it because uh, it's a trigger word so yes it's about people and our life i mean it's about really i think the reason a lot of producers don't want to take it on right now is it's very close to what's happening often they need that time delay after an event in order to be able to make the film like the the airplane landing on the Hudson River etc you know when there's a terrible disaster although that's actually a success story when something tragic happens and and the environmental issue well i'm not saying it's 
tragic. It's ongoing and we're living in it and through it. But uh, you need that time delay to have a sense of perspective on what's happened. So nobody's taking that jump yet. Nobody has taken that plunge. But when they do, perhaps we'll all learn from it. Well, I wish you the very, very best of luck. I'm sure there'll be some producers out there. I love your idea, Matteo, of finding that network and finding that one person, the roughly 8 billion out there who has had similar issues and I'm pretty sure you will find one out there who's had similar issues. Um, any other thoughts from the entrepreneur? Well, I think the other the other important thing is really uh, from an entrepreneur point of view is really making sure that you address something that fixes an actual pain points because that just to say one of now we have different product lines for example with have passport and sometimes I heard the sentence like oh uh, it would be nice to have this with you and you know nice to have for an entrepreneur it's a little bit you know it, it's it's difficult to digest because you understand that it, it can be something it's it's not actually it's an option it's not it's a cherry on top but sometimes when you want to have something very successful you really need to un- identify an audience and address a specific pain point for that specific audience and you take that on quite well because you know it's your little baby chef passport absolutely so you have to be able to say oh yeah that that's a good idea we can we can add that in Absolutely. So it's always being flexible, being understand that a business can start with an idea and over the years it can be turned, pivoted upside down. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. So you just really be very persistent and love what you do, be passionate what you do and never give up. And so you're going to take this idea and you're going to travel around the world with uh, Orlando, uh, cooking for your celiac wife and you and, and various other things. So for those in Luxembourg, you do also have some in real life events. Yeah, that, that that's correct. We recently established a partner with Anne Faber, yes. that is pretty uh, one of the most famous uh, personality food personality influencer. Yeah, if you're a company in Luxembourg and sometimes what is the issue here? I've heard that the people that are here as expats and they thought, "Oh wow, is there an actual Luxembourgish cuisine?" And they don't even know about the, the culture and the, the food in Luxembourg and Anne is an ambassador of this uh, of this mission of making Local, local Luxembourgish food known. And this is why we combine forces and now we can offer in-person team building for corporates here in Luxembourg who want to experiment Luxembourgish cuisine. The show is run by Anne. It can be hosted either at the premises of the uh, of the clients if they have a kitchen space or we're partnering with Cactus that put us their uh, kitchen space at their disposal. So yeah, if you're a company and you want to know more about Luxembourgish cuisine and give a nice experience to your employees, this is one of the things we can do for for them. Well, there we go. As we move into the autumn term, if anyone wants a nice weekend or a nice evening to look forward to, they can learn about Luxembourgish cuisine with, with the wonderful Anne Faber who has been a guest of mine here just before Christmas once. So uh, a lovely hello to the beautiful Anne as well. And and with that, we're going to leave you for another week. But thank you so much for listening as always. If you have any feedback, I love to hear from you. I love to hear your ideas and uh, anything you would want us to cover on this show. Please, please write in about that. And of course, Adeline, everybody's going to be lining up to to take part in the audience of Science Slam to catch the lemons that are coming their way. And for you, we need to find you one of those 8 billion people out there who has had similar problems. And we're going to somehow get you a producer for this environmental sitcom to come. Thank you all so much for listening. RTL Original Podcast.